you could open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, We're going to be examining verse 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Hear the word of God. Behold, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So the Apostle John can be called the Apostle of Love. As I was thinking about this passage, what stuck out to me was how many times we have seen this before. How many times the Apostle Paul has talked about love over and over and over again. He just seems to be oozing from love. It seems that somebody loved John and that somebody transformed John and then John became obsessed with love and then wrote an epistle all about love. And in our world today, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of people like John. I see a lot of anti-Johns, you know, anti-Christ, against Christ. I see a lot of opposites of John, not people who are transformed by love, but rather people who are transformed by hate and spite and evil. In fact, there's a whole phenomenon about this. It's called the cycle of hate or more commonly called the cycle of abuse. Anybody heard of this? The cycle of abuse. Sometimes I wonder if these thoughts just come and originate from my own mind. So what I do, I think, hmm, I think there's something called the cycle of abuse, but is this just like fact or fiction? So what do I do? What does anybody do when they're trying to figure out fact or fiction? Two things you can do. One, talk to Pastor Neil. You can use it square your way. Pull out a book in the library and show you. The other thing I do when I don't have access to Pastor Neil, or don't feel like calling him, is to hit Google and see if there's something called a cycle of abuse. And in fact, there is something called a cycle of abuse. Consider these statistics. 35% of children who've been abused in their lives, in their childhood, themselves become perpetrators of child abuse. I'm sure this is not any news to you, that there's this cycle of abuse. In fact, this was really interesting. In 1985... There were 15 adolescents in the U.S. that were convicted of murder. So 15 people that were small children or something close to it that killed somebody and was convicted for it. You know that 13 of those victims themselves had been a victim of extreme physical or sexual child abuse. That's remarkable. That is, for those who can't do the math off the fly, maybe, maybe Ray already knows this, It's 86%. 86% of the people 
1985 that were convicted of murder were themselves victims of extreme abuse. Interesting enough, they found the number one indication of whether the child was going to become a great parent or themselves an abuser was how they viewed their abuse, whether they viewed it as something that deserved or something that was wrong. Oftentimes when they viewed that something was wrong, they themselves did not perpetrate it, but if they viewed it was deserved or justified, then they often went on to do that themselves. Now the point is, this is called the cycle of abuse. We're all too familiar with it. It's all too sad and heartbreaking. I'm sure we've all can think of examples, or maybe you don't know any examples. I can think of some examples off the top of my head. But our passage is not about the cycle of abuse, but rather it's about the cycle of love. Just as people can be transformed by trauma, there's a whole disease called this, called PTSD. You're transformed negatively by trauma. We can also be transformed positively by loving kindness. And that's really what our passage is about, is being transformed by loving kindness. And I think that John, the apostle of love, is the perfect case of someone not transformed by abuse, but transformed by love. So let's look, do a case study on this man, John, and how he was transformed by God's love to become the apostle of love and to become someone who's obsessed with love, making preaching from First John very difficult because he's always talking about love. And I want to bring you the same sermon every time. So let's do a case study on this. So in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, here's what we read about John. It says, James and John, they were the sons of Zebedee, and Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. That's interesting. Is Jesus nicknamed someone else? Peter. That one stuck, though. <laughs> okay. Uh, this one, this is the only place in the Bible where James and John are identified as the sons of thunder. Peter is identified as Peter all over this place. In fact, that's how we primarily know him as Peter by what Jesus named him. But yet, James and John, outside of this verse, we would never know that they were called by Jesus the sons of thunder. So why were they called the sons of thunder? Well, I thought I had known the reason, and you probably think you know the reason, and you're probably right. But interesting enough, you go to commentators, sometimes they'll convince you that you don't know what you already know. And so I found a lot of commentators that we have no idea. Beats us. We have no idea why his name is the sons of thunder. Well... I think as we examine these people, we will discover why they were called the sons of thunder. Here's one commentator that actually did know what he was talking about. Ignore the people who don't know what they're talking about and go to people who say, at least claim that they know. Here's what he said. He said, we may see in the name given a witness to the fiery spirit and the zeal of the sons of Zebedee. Call somebody a son of thunder, not because they're meek and mild. You call someone a son of thunder because they're fiery, and loud. So let's look at some examples of this fiery spirit of James and John, but particularly we're concerned about John. So in Luke chapter 9, you might want to go over there if you want to, Luke chapter 9, verses 53 and 55, we read this. The Samaritan people did not receive Jesus because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, those are the sons of thunder, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
But Jesus turned, and he rebuked them. Now, in my definition, that's pretty fiery. To want to call down fire for people not properly responding to Jesus. Let me ask you this. Is this how we normally react when we try to evangelize someone and it doesn't go well? So, has anybody been door-to-door knocking? Knock on the door. Sometimes people don't answer. You kick the door open. I know you're in there. Most likely not. Or when they open the door and say, no, I don't want the religious stuff. You respond with yelling, screaming, grabbing them by the throat. Again, hopefully not. In fact, Jesus actually tells us in this very chapter how to respond to when people don't respond to you in the right way when you try to evangelize them. Look back to verse 1 through 5. Same chapter. Here's what Jesus' instruction was. Verse 1. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not take two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whenever they do not receive you, that's what we're looking for, right? They're going out for a mission. What should we do when they don't receive us? Look at verse 5 again. And whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So what are you supposed to do when people don't receive you? Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I don't know about you. I know some people probably know more about this Middle Eastern culture and exactly what this means, and they may have seen this. But even without looking at the commentators or being in the Middle East, Something tells me shaking off the dust of your feet does not include setting the town on fire. That's just my guess. It probably does not include a night raid or an attack or anything of the sort. And interesting enough, we don't need to speculate about what exactly it means to shake off the dust of your feet and whether it includes setting the town on fire. We see this in Acts chapter 13 where Paul went preaching in the city of Antioch. And by the way, Antioch was the place where Christians were first called Christians. And so this is before anyone got saved. He went there to preach. And we read this in Acts 13, 50. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city of Antioch and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. So that's definitely not a favorable reaction, right? That if you go preaching and there's a mob that comes after you and tries to kill you, it's about as bad as things could possibly go. And so this mob then is, according to our text, they drove Paul and Barnabas out of the district. So this is the bad welcoming. And verse 51, and they, that's Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them and then went to Iconium. So the shaking off the dust was not a night raid. It was not setting the town on fire. It was a protest Let this dust, not even the dust shall cling upon me. Let your damnation be upon you. And then they continue to travel. In fact, there's this movie of Acts where they actually show this scene, and they're like kicking the dust off literally, and then they keep going. That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to shake off the dust of their feet and leave. They were not supposed to want to call down fire from heaven and have these people killed. And hence, Jesus rebukes them for this kind of behavior because this is not how we're supposed to respond to evangelism. We don't respond to evangelism by bullying people and beating them up. We respond to negative 
reaction to evangelism by praying for them and walking away. Here's another example of the fiery spirit of these two brothers, the sons of thunder. In Luke chapter 9, verse 49, right before this event, in the same chapter you're already in, Luke chapter 9, verse 49, we see this. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So here's another example of the fiery spirit of these sons of thunder, this apostle John. John tried to stop someone from doing ministry simply because he was not part of their group. This is elitism, and this is a separatist spirit. Let me just say this. We've got to make sure that we don't do that either. Right? We've got to make sure that we ourselves don't have this elitist, separatist spirit. If you're not part of my little group and my little sect and my perfect theology, then you can't do ministry. Ministry is excluded from you. No. No, Jesus rebukes them. This is not a spirit of love. This is a spirit of wrath, hate, and jealousy. Here's another example. In Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, verse 20 and 21. I'm sure that you remember this scene. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her two sons. That's James and John, the sons of thunder. And she kneeled before him and asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say to these two sons of mine, James and John, that they are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I am able to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those of whom it was prepared by my father. And then check this, when, at the very end of the verse it says, verse 24, and when the ten heard it, what do you think? What's coming next? And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, wouldn't you be pretty indignant? I mean, think about this. So these guys go so low that they get mom involved in their conspiracy. They bring mom to ask Jesus to try to get them on top of their fellow disciples so that they could be top rank and that their disciples could be under them. Now, this is certainly not loving. It is certainly not what we should be doing, trying to fight for who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, I just want to make a side note here and ask you this. Who were those closest to Jesus? Anybody know? We have 120. Those are the people that were there in the book of Acts when Jesus died in the birth of the church. You got 120. Then you have the 70. He sent out the 70 as two by two. Remember that? To the 70 nations. So they obviously had a place in Christ's inner circle. Then we have the 12, 12 apostles, 12 disciples. Then we have the three. Does anybody know who's in the three? Peter, James, and John. Now, is there any similarity of these three people? Peter, James, and John. What do we know that is a commonality of these three people? Zeal. For they all had their faults, but they all had a lot of zeal. All of the passages we just read show these fiery sons of thunder, and a lot of them, were, actually all of them are bad, but they also show a zeal for the things of God. 
Now, what about Jesus? Did Jesus have a lot of zeal? If you recall, he went into a temple with a whip, and he cleared out the temple. At the end of that episode, in John chapter 2, verse 17, we read this, And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume you. So I want you to notice this. Jesus was zealous for the kingdom of God. The inner circle, those who were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, were also zealous for the kingdom of God. Now, do you think that's an accident? Why these three men? I think it's because that they were zealous. And just as the master, they shared his spirit for zeal. Even though they often put their foot in their mouth, at least they were zealous for the kingdom of God. And God can use a man like that, a man who's zealous. Yes, he will zealously do a lot of bad things. But this is the kind of man that God can use, someone who's zealous and fired up for the kingdom of God. In fact, God wants to use you like that. He doesn't want this to be their story. He wants this to be your story. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So these people that were closest to Jesus were zealous. The question is, are you zealous for God? Are you zealous for good works? And that's kind of the test. You can say you're zealous for God, but you're zealous for God displayed by your zeal for good works. Or are you just trying to check the block? I tell people this when I'm inter- not interviewing them, when I onboard them. I said there's two types of workers. There's people who go above and beyond. There's people who ride the fence. People who ride the fence try to find out the rule and straddle the fence and get as close to that rule as possible. And those people often fall off on the other side. Don't be a fence rider, a fence walker, someone who's merely trying to check the block, someone who's merely trying to do the bare minimum. Someone who's always asking, well, does God's law dictate that I can't do this? How far can I go? That shouldn't be us. We should not be people who are interested in doing the bare minimum. This is not pleasing to the Lord. God wants your heart, not simply your hands. God has a thousand laborers. He has angels of abundance. He can get them to do whatever he wants all the time, every time. But God wants to use us, and he wants us to serve him. Today, of course, is Mother's Day. What if you woke up this morning and gave your wife, if she's a mother or your mother, a phone call or a present and said, I'm giving this to you, Mom, out of duty. I don't want to do this, but it's Mother's Day, and if I don't do this, I'll be viewed as a bad son. I've done my duty. Here you go. Would that be honoring to any of you? But if you say, how wonderful, what a great son. You called me because you had to. I thank you. You've honored me so much. I don't think any of you, maybe some of you felt that way, but I don't think any of you expressed it that way. I don't think any of you would think that that's honoring to your wife or your mother. Sometimes we treat God that way. I don't want to serve you, but you're God. I'm just going to do it because you're God and you're bigger and stronger than me. You'll judge me one day. This is not honoring to God whatsoever. This is not pleasing to him. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
This is what God wants us to do, is to set our bodies as a living sacrifice by renewing our minds and not being conformed to this world. The question is, how are we doing with this? Are we presenting our bodies as living sacrifice? Are we renewing our minds? Are we refusing to be conformed to this world? Because I see more and more those in the broader Christian world not doing any of these things, but rather being conformed to this world. I just heard on the news the other day another historic Reformed congregation, whole group of them, have capitulated to the same-sex agenda. Why? Because they were conformed to this world. They need to hear, we need to hear these words in James chapter 4. You adulterous people, do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I personally do not like tattoos whatsoever. But if I was going to get a tattoo, I might tattoo this on my chest. Because this is what we need to hear. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Brothers and sisters, let us be zealous for the things of the Lord and zealous to please him and zealous to be people of good works. We, like Peter, James, and John, will often, if we're zealous, put our foots in our mouth, do crazy things, but God can transform us. A man who is fire on the Lord will often make mistakes, but through time, God will take this son of thunder full of hate and turn him to a son of thunder full of love. We can't produce zeal. We have to have the zeal. We have to bring the zeal. So this is what happened to James and John. They went from sons of thunder full of hate to sons of thunder full of zeal. In fact, we all know this. In four different locations in the Gospel of John, do you know that John is identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved? That's his title. I'll give you a few examples. John chapter 13, verse 23. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. John 20, verse 2. For Mary Magdalene ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. He's identified this way four different times in the gospel. Why? Well, one commentator said this about who is this disciple and why he's identified this way. He said, this was doubtless John himself. The evangelists are not accustomed to mention their own names when they mark, when any mark of favor or any good deed is recorded. They do not seek publicity or notoriety. So he's being humble. He didn't want to put himself forward. He wanted to hide behind this cloak of the disciple whom he loved. The other reason he identified him this way is because he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That this transformed him. This love turned this man's hard and hateful heart and transformed him into one who was tender and loving toward others. Just imagine that you are this person who's full of hate and anger, and you've just been loved. You just People have just loved on you. It has a transforming effect on who you are. And then you start reflecting this toward others. And that's exactly what happened to John. John was loved by Jesus. And that softened his heart. You think about The Grinch. Anybody remember The Grinch movie? I remember this from my childhood. And there's this scene, not the weird Grinch, like the cartoon version, the old school Grinch, right? And there's this scene where you have the little Grinch's little tiny heart, and that tiny heart grows and grows. And if I recall, I think Grinch was transformed by the love of some child or something. I can't remember exactly, but I think so. 
That's what God wants to do to you. He wants to transform your heart. He wants to pour in love so that you pour in love for others. Let's look back to our passage in 1 John 4-7 and see how this is exactly what our text is saying. 1 John 4-7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever love, loves has been born of God and knows God. The source of love is from God. The source of hate is from the evil one. This is why the Bible says things like, the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness of men. Yes, you can be angry towards sin, be angry and do not sin. Yes, it is possible. But 90% of the time that we're angry, we're not angry with righteous zeal. In fact, we're angry of all kinds of wicked things. That love, that purity of love is from God. In fact, from all of eternity, God was not mad. God was not angry. There was nothing for him to be angry about. The only reason God was ever angry is because of sin. And sin comes from the evil one. Anger is a byproduct of sin. But love is a byproduct of God. Our God is triune. He has always lived in a perfect community of love. And he invites us to participate in that community. This is why also the Bible says that love is one of the fruits of the Spirit. One of the things that the Spirit who indwells you produces is not hate, but love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Gentleness, self-control, right? These are the fruits of the Spirit. This is what God produces in you. If you have been born again, you should have the fruits of the God who now indwells you. If you lack love, guess what? You lack God. Is that simple? If you have that Grinch-like heart that's tiny and shriveled up and full of hate and always grumpy and always upset and always complaining, then you lack God because God is love. And put it differently. If you want more love, what must you do? If you say, I have love, but not enough. I want more love. I want to be a more loving person. How do you get more love? Get more of God. It's really just that simple. It's not your personality. It's not your genetics. It's not who you are. Well, it might be who you are, but it's not who you should be. All you need to do is get closer to the source of love, and then you will reflect more of that love. And who is the source of love? God is fundamentally love. I want you to just step back and ask yourself, are you someone who any reasonable person who knows you would describe you as a person of love? When you look in the mirror, does any reasonable person say, you are a loving person? And if not, go home and work on this. Go home and pray about this. Go home and say, God, you are a God of love, and I should reflect your character. Let me say something else about this. How do you primarily view God? Do you primarily view God as a hateful God? Where in the Bible does it say God is hate? Show me that verse. Please, show me. I can find verses that say God is wrathful, he's extremely fire. I can find that. But where does the scripture say God is hate? God is not fundamentally hate. God is fundamentally love. And we, as his people, should primarily reflect attributes of love. If you want more love, get closer to God, who is the source of love. And this will become the cycle of love. We talked about the cycle of abuse. But I'm trying to lead you to the cycle of love by being transformed by this God who has loved us so that we go on and love other people, that people come and see God through us. Look down to verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Exactly what I just said. This is what the Bible says. There's multiple tests in the gospel of, of the little epistle of John. Walking in light and not darkness. 
and love and not having heretical beliefs about Jesus are some of the major tests that we find over and over and repeated in this. And as I mentioned that cycle of abuse, remember I said that according to the social sciences, according to the statistics, as accurate as they are, who knows how accurate they are, they tell us that the cycle of abuse is about 30%. But what percent should be the cycle of love? 100%. Shouldn't it? 100% of people who have been loved by God and transformed by that love should then reflect that love. I look down at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to see love displayed, if you want to see the heart of God, look to the gospel. In this, the love of God has been made manifest. In this, the love of God has been shown. It's the glorious gospel of love. That's why John 3.16, one of the most beloved verses of all the Bible, begins with love. For God so loved the world. I think sometimes we can go so extreme with this. We push back against certain theologies and go to the other extreme. You cannot exaggerate the love of God. The problem is people minimize other attributes of God, but you cannot exaggerate the love of God. God's love for the world is displayed by giving his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're sitting there and wondering if God loves you, remember the gospel. Just as you can know with absolute assurance that if you believe in him, you should not perish but have eternal life, so you can know with absolute assurance that the God of this world so loved you that he made that offer possible to you. Because he didn't love you, there would be no offer. It would be like Monopoly when you hit jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. He could just throw us all into hell right now with no chance of salvation whatsoever. And yet you live in this place at this time hearing his gospel, but you can know for sure that he has loved you. He has clearly demonstrated his love by sending his own son. Look at verse 9 again, verse B, part B. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Remember I said that God is love fundamentally, primarily displayed in Trinitarian love of the Father loving the Son and the Holy Spirit all combined? Well, this God who loved himself and the other members of the Trinity so much loved you by sending his Son to die so that he would accomplish salvation and make salvation possible for you. This is the God that we love. This is good news. This is the gospel that we don't have to die. We don't have to be punished for our sins. We can be forgiven if we simply will accept his plea. Randy Alcorn, my favorite author by far, he has this really strange book called The Edge of Eternity. Very strange book. It is weird. It's really good, though. But it's very strange. And it has all these weird images. But one of my favorite parts of that book is this parable where the Christian person who got saved, it's like a pilgrim's progress, but very strange, And he comes upon these men in a cage. And these men are locked in this cage for who knows how long. And he notices that the cage is actually unlocked. And he yells out to the men, come, be free, for the cage has been unlocked. And the men in the cage go back and forth with the man, telling him it's all a lie, the cage is locked, they cannot get out. So eventually the man opens the door, showing them that the door is open and pleading with them and saying, look, The door is open. 
come out. And they say it's a trick, it's a lie, it's deception. And the parable ends with the man leaving. And after a long while, the people in the cage going up to the door, looking out, grabbing the door, and shutting it. That's the world. That parable is meant to communicate how people are about the gospel. They're locked in the cage, not realizing that Christ has already accomplished salvation, and if they simply receive him and believe it and walk out of that cage, they could be completely free. But yet, rather, they decide to be deceived and continue to believe that the door is locked when it's not. This is how tragic, how foolish, how sad. Christ has paid the price accomplishing salvation. John 1.29 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The cage is open. Walk through it. Believe. You're free. Repent, believe, be saved. Stop acting like there's no hope. Stop acting like you cannot be free. But walk through. If you have walked through, thank him. Open that cage. He's opened the cage. We're wrapping up here. Look at verse 10. First John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the glorious truth of God. We did not first love God and God responded to us, but rather we were first loved by God. The message that we have to preach to other people is that you have been loved by God even when you were unlovable. Nobody made themselves a good candidate for God. Nobody won over God. Nobody said, pick me, and God said, yes, I will pick you. But rather, we were all bad candidates, despicable people, people that deserve nothing but death, and yet God first loved us. We need to go and tell the world that we have a God that loves them and a God that sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation just means appeasement. That's, the world needs to hear that. The world needs to know that, that they are loved by somebody. And that somebody is God. And that somebody has made appeasement for their sins possible upon the mere condition of faith and repentance. Two more verses. Verse 11 and verse 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If you have been a recipient of this great love by God, go and express that love to somebody else. Be John. Be someone who said, God, you loved me so much. How can I hate others? That's one of the number one signs of unbelievers. People full of hate and unforgiveness. Have you ever met someone like that? They got a list of offenses other people have done to them. But they seem to have forgotten their list of offenses that they have done to God. Think about this. We sin against various people. Boom, 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 boom. I've probably sinned against every single person in this room. I've sinned against every individual, probably in this room, at different times. But God, I've sinned against every single time. Every single time that you sin, you've offended God. And yet that God, who's always been offended by you and sinned against by you, is the one who forgave you. And yet you have a list of sins against somebody else that you won't forgive them. It's outrageous. It's unbelievable. It's demonic. That's why the Bible says if you refuse to forgive, you will not be forgiven. You must forgive. You must recognize that the God who forgave you, the God who loved you, calls you to love others. It can't be more clear than that. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Last verse, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. 
And what's this last verse doing for our text? This is an amazing verse. I'm just sad that we don't have more time to talk about this. Do you know what this verse is saying? This verse is saying this. Very few people will ever pick up the Bible. Very few people will ever come and read the beautiful and wonderful things God has done for them in the scriptures. But many people will see you. That's what it's saying. That the love of God, that nobody... Let me back up. Very few people have seen God. Actually, no one has seen God. But they can see God in you. That's what it's saying. And you can think about Matthew chapter 25, when it talks about, at the final judgment, that Jesus will say, you did it. You clothed me. You fed me. You loved on me. And the people will say, when did we do this to you, Lord? And it said, he said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. That's what he's talking about. We cannot see God, but we can see God in you. Well, can we? Not if you're hateful. Not if you're unforgiving. Not if you're wretched. But if, in fact, you are a vessel of love, people will see God in you. Isn't that incredible? People will see you and see beyond you and see God. Let me tell you one last story about this. I remember when I was unsaved and I was lost in this world, headed to hell, that this little Asian lady came up to me and said, I have a blessing for you, hand me a track, and disappeared. To this day, I see beyond that lady, I see God who was using that lady to reach me. The question is, will anybody ever say that about you? Not just about evangelism, about anything. But more importantly, to our passage about love. Will anyone ever see beyond you and see God behind you loving them? Because you're a vessel of his grace and a vessel of his love. They won't unless you love. They won't unless you love. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us so that people can feel God's love through us. That's your calling. That's why you're still here. That's why you haven't been swooped away. Because God wants you to be his image, bearing his image, expressing his love for a lost and dying world. Love. Find somebody to love and love on them. For the name of Christ. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you are a God of love. Oh, how terrible it would be if you were just a God of hate. Just a God of wrath. If that were the case, we'd all be damned, doomed, and lost. But you are a God of love, of Trinitarian love, and you are so good that you invite us to be a part of that love. I thank you, God, that you have loved me. I thank you, God, that you have loved everyone in this room. And I ask that you would help us to be more loving. That we would not slander, we'd not be full of hate, not full of bitterness, we'd forgive. We would just love each other. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name.